Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Well, Corey, we've got a special treat today. Our guest is Professor Zach Hambrick of the Michigan State University Psychology Department. And because he's from Michigan State, we've got him right here in the room with us. So no staring into a video monitor and uh, weird audio. Got him right here. Zach got his PhD in experimental psychology at Georgia Tech in 2000. And his expertise is individual differences. And Zach, maybe you can just explain to our listeners what is meant by that specialization within psychology. Um, Well, I study uh, how people differ, particularly in cognitive uh, abilities and and also um, skill in complex domains. Individual differences looks at uh, sources of particularly between subject or between person variability in intelligence and more specific cognitive abilities. And do you do personality as well? A, a bit. The main focus is ability, but we've also looked at in various studies at, at personality traits and for example, in predicting outcomes like um, learning a complex task, and we look at whether personality also predicts variation in outcomes like that. But again, the main focus is on general intelligence and also more specific facets of cognitive ability like working memory. So right before we started, I was asking you whether uh, how your field relates to this other field in psychology called personnel selection. And I think you explained that personnel selection is an application right. of what you do. And for the listeners, personnel selection is really the science of how you, for example, you have a certain job category that you want to fill. What are the best really predictors, in a sense, that you can use, measurables or facts about the applicants for those positions in order to fill those positions with the most capable people? Right. That is that is one of the major applications of, of this work. For example, we have a grant from the Office of Naval Research, and we're looking at ways to improve the ASVAB. The ASVAB is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. And it's basically a cognitive ability test that is used for personnel selection and classification, whether someone is eligible to enlist and then what sort of job they're placed in. And the ASVAB is a, a quite old uh, test, and what we're looking at is whether we can measure new cognitive constructs and see whether those improve prediction of, of outcomes uh, above and beyond the ASVAB. So. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the military applications of uh, cognitive testing. Um, so I think a lot of people misunderstand this, but my understanding is that at literally every recruit into the military, so we're talking about millions of people, and then over time, probably maybe 100 million people have been tested with these instruments, right? Or tens that's, of millions at least. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. And how you score really has an important impact as to where you're placed in the military, it, right? It, it does. I don't know the specific cutoffs, but it also determines whether you can enlist in in the first place and then in turn what sort of job you're placed in. Right. I I think that depending on whether there's a war on and what the economy is like and what their recruiting goals is, the lower cutoff for who they will accept in the military fluctuates around, I think, the IQ equivalent of about 90, something like this. And so if if you have trouble hitting that 
threshold, you have trouble actually getting in the military, even if you want to get into the military. Right. And they also, the cutoffs, I believe, I don't have this exact numbers again, but vary depending on uh, the branch. Right. And so I think I, I recall like, okay, say you want to be a com- in the communication specialty or electronic specialty, generally that would have a higher threshold. Uh, on the other hand, if you're maybe infantry or, you know, some support function, the cutoff might be lower. Right. And they're, they're different. Uh, the ASVAB is a test battery, and it includes subtests to measure verbal ability, mathematical ability. It also has subtests to measure knowledge in particular areas like information and mechanics and this sort of thing. And then the the main score that's used uh, for enlistment is called the AFQT, the Armed Forces Qualifying Test. And uh, that basically is uh, verbal ability and mathematical ability, a sort of a, a measure of general cognitive ability, at least kind of crystallized cognitive ability. But then the other subtest can be used uh, for more classification purposes. So... I have a question, Zach. Um, they're given a fairly generic test in these, at least initial recruits. Everyone's given it. And then when someone wants to go into a field, say communications, are gi- they given a secondary test that specializes on that particular subject matter? Um, actually, what I was- Or are they actually weeded out purely on the basis of the initial test? Uh, right. So so the, the AFQT score is, it, it captures performance on a couple of the subtests, a few of the subtests on- the ASVAB, and then the other subtests are used for more classification purposes. There may well be additional tests that people are given uh, once they enlist. I'm actually not not sure on that. Because uh, it would just seem to me kind of odd if you had a more or less generic IQ test and that said, you can't be in communications, but were this person to take actually a specific communications test... They might be actually pretty damn good, although they basically flunked yeah. the initial IQ well, again, test. Well, again, the presumption is that for a job like that, you have to have a certain level of, of cognitive ability, and that will tend to be true. There may be people out there who um, have a high level of skill in some particular domain. I'm but, just curious as to whether the, yeah, whether the Armed Forces realizes that, right, that there's somebody who might not be terribly good at general test. I think that this we're going to get into this topic a little bit if Zach wants to talk about it. I could talk about it a little bit. But there was a very famous situation under Robert McNamara during the Vietnam War. You're familiar with this. Oh, sure. Right? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, so so they kind of tested your hypothesis, Corey. So what they did is they admitted a bunch of people with lower scores than they ordinarily would have uh, into the military and into certain specialties and then measured very carefully. I think it was 100,000 people. It was quite. It was not a small statistics study. And then, for example, so you might say, oh, well, we used to have this cutoff of 110 to get into artillery. And, uh, well, we'll just let some people in who don't qualify under our old rubric no, that, that's and not see my, how that, they perform. That's not what I'm complain- kept suggesting, actually. I'm saying, look, you might have some people have actually pretty narrow abilities, maybe almost savants in a very narrow area, or they do pretty badly in general. And you don't want to lose these people, right? So give them two tests, a general test uh, where they might do well, might not do so well. But then you might actually uncover a pretty specific ability right. that and you might want to exploit later on. And to, to weed these people out in the initial, on the basis of the initial test strikes me is not very smart. Right. Well, I think you're making an empirical claim there. So, so it may turn out that it is useful to 
relax the you know raw ability measurement in favor of the narrow skill measurement. But you got to remember, in these guys have to do a bunch of other stuff as well as like run the cannon. They have to actually interact with other people and do some more general tasks. So there's probably some very nuanced theory among psychologists about which is the better predictor. Uh, you know, even if the guy is very high on some narrow uh, skill thing, he, and if he's sufficiently low on the aptitude, overall aptitude, that that's still there still may be a problem. Yeah, it, it also depends, of course, on the final job the guy's going to be doing and what yes. his uh, life's going to be like in the military. <clears throat> yeah, I I happy to get into more detail about the military stuff, but I, I think the one point I wanted to make, and I'll let Zach sort of take the lead on this, but the main point I want to make is that since the SAT and other aptitude tests are very controversial right now in the academy and university admissions and graduate school admissions, one of the things that most people seem unaware of is that there's a sort of, in a sense, equally large statistics set of results in the military where they've come to the conclusion that it does make sense to have pretty hard thresholds uh, for letting people into certain areas of operation. And I think the data are very strong. So maybe, Zach, you want to say something. Right. Well, this a lot of this work has been done by people in organizational psychology and industrial organizational psychology. And if you ask a, a person in this area what the single best predictor of job performance is, what they'll tell you, general cognitive ability. And this is a conclusion based on huge data sets, many from the military. Uh, Frank Schmidt at University of Iowa is one of the leading uh, people in this area for many decades. And I, I think that, you know, if they've looked at, at a, wide, a wide range of jobs from really simple jobs to, to complex jobs. And the validities, which is to say the correlations between general cognitive ability or some other predictor and performance, they tend to be higher for more complex jobs than less complex jobs, but they're they're non-trivial even for low complexity jobs, which kind of gets a little bit at your point. So whatever the job is, general ability is still going to be a, a factor that I'm not influence. arguing it's not right. I'm asking right. whether there's another dimension, whether some narrow abilities might actually since Trump the general ability if there's a yeah. conflict. This has been a huge debate in this area, and the question is, is is it all just G, general intelligence? And you can, if, if you look at job performance, you can improve prediction a little bit with measures of more specific abilities, but it's not much compared to the contribution of of general cognitive ability. That's the conclusion from this work uh, that Steve was referring to. Yeah, I think if you look at Schmidt's papers or other papers in this area, which again are based on huge statistics, it's it's generally not even close. Like the first right. factor That's is right. general cognitive ability, which is basically kind of IQ. And then if you look at the next biggest factor that they can find, which it has to be something that you can measure about the the candidate right. beforehand, right? right? Nothing comes even close, right? It could be like five times less variance accounted for or yes. something like this. And that's that's correct. So, and and that's also true for personality, say. So conscientiousness is one of the so-called big five personality traits, and um, it correlates positively with job performance, but it's nowhere near in terms of its predictive power. It's nowhere near general cognitive ability as a general statement across a wide range of jobs. So l let me let me say something which uh, I, I think is a kind of 
a folk statement about the kind of stuff that you do, uh, just you can react to it. And some people might say like, well, we kind of know, like that you just stated the big result. We kind of know that uh, general cognitivity works well and nothing else really comes close. And so in a way, the field is, you could regard this as a positive thing or a negative thing. It's kind of reassuringly boring in a sense that this main result just keeps getting replicated again and again, and nobody can find another thing that you could measure about the person that is nearly as good as cognitivity. But the general public does not want to accept this as true. And so there's just this constant barrage of other results, which may not actually replicate. I'm using air quotes when I say results, which may not replicate. But as soon as somebody proposes one, whether it's Malcolm Gladwell or uh, I forgot, is it Amy Duckworth or Susan? Uh, Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth. Somebody proposes some other measurement thing, which isn't cognitive ability, but which is awesome. Everybody seizes on that because they just like that feel-good story. They don't want to believe that there's this one thing that really is so impactful. Right. is, is, that, is that how that's, the world looks to you? Yes, okay. that's, exa- that's exactly it. For you know, many decades now, people have been looking at something that, that is better than G. And it's really hard to find. And when people make claims uh, that, that there is, and at least to this point, they, they tend to be overblown. Now, uh, this is one important point to make here is that G is is far from perfect as a predictor of job performance or any other outcome. So there's value in searching for additional predictors. Um, that could include uh, certainly you know specific experience and specific skills, which may themselves be correlated with with G. So there's that issue. You find people who have really high high knowledge in some specific domain, well, that might be a stand-in for or reflect their high level of cognitive ability. But yeah, that's that's certainly been th- this work on general intelligence and particularly job performance. It, it is kind of reassuringly boring, but I think that's what we should actually want in a science of psychology. Right, stable truth. Stable truth. <laughs> and another stable truth, in fact, maybe the most stable truth in psychological science is G itself. G is is basically, uh, it's the general factor of intelligence, and if you give a bunch of people a bunch of cognitive ability tests, scores on those tests will tend to correlate positively with each other. person who does well on one will tend to do better on all the others. And this was 150 years ago, People didn't know this. This is not a foregone conclusion. You can think of models of the brain and cognition that would predict different outcomes, but it turns out that's the way it is. And G is a, a take-it-to-the-bank finding and probably the most replicated finding in all of psychology. You know, it's funny. If you look at that early data, they even looked at uh, things which people might not regard as so, sort of cognitive traits, right. like ability to, like, detect musical tones right. or, right. you know, uh, reaction time yes. or things like this. And they all turned out to be positively correlated That's right. with G. And so I, the strong interpretation of this, which I think is still controversial, but some of my friends who are uh, cognitive scientists believe in this, is that it is kind of basically a measure of the just general goodness of functioning of right. your brain. Right. And um, that's why it's positively correlated with almost any task that you give somebody. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we still don't know exactly what G 
is. I mean, that is a, an ongoing area of, of research and, and debate. People have said, well, it's working memory, the ability to hold attention, uh, information in the focus of attention. Other people have said it's speed of basic uh, mental processes. And we still don't know exactly what, what G is. But what we do know is that, as well as we know anything, is that G exists, A, and that it predicts important outcomes, job performance, mortality. What's the correlation with, um, I guess, there are many different types of jobs, so we can go down. I'm, in my head, I'm having skepticism of what, about whether, you know, uh, an Air Force pilot, whether G is the best predictor performance in combat versus reaction time, other kinds of uh, possible cognitive measures. Yeah, the claim would be, I mean, just generally in this field, is that you want to select a bunch of pilots, and you can make a bunch of measurements on them, and there's no single measurement that does better than sure. But I'm wondering, more but I'm wondering, but how close are the other measures, and how important, say, simple reaction time? Like, you can't get into the Air Force unless you have good vision. So that looks like a that's a that's a seriously hard cutoff for being uh, an Air Force pilot. They clearly think they clearly think that that's extremely important. So I'm not sure anymore how important vision is because, like, mostly you're using a heads up display and stuff. But we probably don't have that much data on that as you say, because they didn't let any nearsighted people like me fly planes, right? So they don't really know how big of a handicap it is to be staring out through goggles, you know, corrective lenses during flight. Um, but my understanding is from across a broad variety of jobs, there isn't anything close to G typically for screening candidates. But That's true. That's, that, that's true. Again, this includes things like personality. It includes interview performance. It includes motivation and the the average correlation across a wide range of, of jobs between G and performance is about 0.5 somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.5 again I'm you know, I'm thinking about the military and I'm thinking about infantrymen in the military now once you cross that basic threshold maybe above 90 you know I'm not I'm thinking about job performance and I'm really skeptical about whether G's can predict job performance in the infantry over physical fitness, over conscientiousness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I can imagine if you have exceedingly low IQ, you may not do well in the infantry. But once you have a basic level of IQ, I would find it surprising, actually, to think that that's the best predictor. I'd be a disastrous infantryman, I'm pretty certain. I score pretty high in IQ tests. Um, but I, I'm open to being corrected. I, well, I think you could give a simple counterexample, like, oh, find me a center for an NBA team. Really? Are you going to use G as the main criteria? No. You're going to look at a whole bunch of other things okay, before you look at Okay, infantry is all—there's a lot more people can qualify for the right. infantry so, that can qualify to be centers right. for so NBA teams. Right, so somewhere between professional athlete and foot soldier, right, at some point you can find other things that are more important. And sure, if the guy can't walk but has off-the-charts G, probably, yeah, not the infantry, Right. Not just that, right? But it has to be a certain ability to bond with your your fellow soldiers, a certain willingness to just work incredibly hard under unpleasant circumstances, right? right. Et cetera, so, et cetera. So, I'm not, so there's strength, I guess, strength, ex ex exactly. So, so I think your model of reality on those cognitive things, like being able to work well with others or whatever, it I. I think my intuitive picture is similar to yours. The only issue is how well can you measure those in the recruits. Yeah. Um, now, physical strength is one that you could measure, right? So if you sure. say, hey, you have to be able to at least walk six miles without dying, 
you know, that in, probably is pretty good. And basic training, no doubt, includes physical fitness. Right. Yeah, no, they're, they're, and you have to run a, a two mile in 12 minutes yeah. or something like so that. The, so the data is a little corrupted in the sense that you don't get the performance data on the various G people until they've already passed through basic training, which means they had but some basic I'm also curious as to how you assess job performance in these areas, because I'm curious, do we tend to find that generals uh, are very, very high IQ people, or are they people with these kind of insane work habits who... Uh, extremely straight arrows, maybe a very good judgment about people, et cetera, et cetera, but are they the people who are scoring in generally generally the highest IQ tests? Well, I can't think of a specific study off the top of my head, but if we looked at average scores on the ASVAB or some other type of, of ability test, yeah, I think on average we would find that the the you know generals and high-ranking officers or higher on average than, say, infantry. I, I would agree with that, right? But I I would say that my guess is other characteristics take over no, I, to move you through the ranks that may be more I, important I than G. I, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, maybe... I, in, G- no, this is a great... I, I, I've got, we've got some data that are directly relevant to this. Um, there are two points I, I wanted to, to make in response to what you were saying. Okay, so one is the idea that it's uh, been called a, the threshold, a threshold hypothesis concerning cognitive ability and it's the idea that you only have to have a certain level of cognitive ability and that beyond that G loses its for these kind of jobs right especially and and this has been looked at in a number of data sets and what you tend to find is that the relationship is linear for all jobs for at least the jobs that have been looked at and which ones are those uh, you know everything from you know tank um, crew person to, um, you know, infantry, infantrymen, and a lot of different jobs. Okay. This is, uh, this is counter to this, the idea that beyond a certain level, cognitive ability loses its predictive power. And you can look in, in the classroom to the correlations between ACT and college performance are, are linear. The higher, the better. Okay. That's quite different than job performance, which calls on. Yes, yes. I, I was just noting that, that that you see the same in that uh, realm as well. Okay, so another uh, related point is this question of whether, as a function of experience in a in a job, well, maybe after a certain uh, a certain amount of experience, cognitive ability loses its predictive power, so the validities. Uh, decrease. And this is an idea that has been promoted, uh, especially in the literature on ex- expertise, which is another area that I publish it in. They say, well, yeah, cognitive ability, talent, if you will, intellectual talent is important initially, but when you continue to practice in a domain and acquire domain-specific skills, it, it loses its predictive power. I call this the vanishing validity myth because there's really not very much evidence for it. So if you look in large military samples, I got my hands on um, a a data set with about 11,000 enlisted uh, personnel, all sorts of jobs, radio operator, artillery, all sorts of stuff, 33 different jobs, I think. And what they had was they had ASVAB scores, and then they also had 
uh, job experience, how long they had been in the job. And you see a little increase in terms of the correlation between uh, AFQT score, which is G basically, and job performance as measured with hands-on jobs te- job tests. You see a little decrease in the correlation initially, but even after uh, 10 years of, of experience on in these jobs, and maybe even more, a lot, a lot of job experience, the correlations are, are still m- large enough to be meaningful. They're statistically significant, but they're also practically significant. There's a little bit of a decrease, but it's not the case that, uh, that the validities are that go to zero. So take a characteristic like uh, ability to conform. Okay. It would seem to, that, to me that that would be pretty important to success in the military. Nonconformists are generally not going to do well. Uh, high Q nonconformists probably especially badly because they're going to be rebellious. So I'm curious, have people looked at characteristics like that examining? Well, and I would and I would just add that they, they're probably not going to enlist in the first place. Um, Maybe you're right, you're, but they may get weeded out. I, I, I can yeah. think of my having my time in, in the corporate world a little bit. And right. a bunch of people came in, and I have to say, the people who lasted the longest, from my personal point of view, did not seem to be the smartest, right? They're people willing to conform to the culture. The nonconformists got in, and then various problems started happening so, right off yeah. the bat. Corey, let me let me try to illustrate the I think the point that you're wrestling with no one's saying that uh, G accounts for all of the variants so so you don't get a rank ordering of career yeah, performance I'm saying, does something in. surpass G right so so if you say looked at you go back to your example of generals in the military I think you would find them uniformly above average compared to enlisted men but you would also find them for example probably extremely self-disciplined right and driven. Right. Now and probably much further above average on those counts. Possibly I guess. even more above average on those factors. The issue is how well can you measure and predict those aspects of that person. That's one of the issues. That's not the clue. That's well, one of in, the issues. In their research, it is because because you always have to deal with a measurement at the beginning and ask how well does it correlate with outcome. And if you can't measure it well uh, at the beginning, you have difficulty yeah, predicting. I mean, right. So fair point. So one of the issues with G is that it's pretty measurable. Like if he measures the AFQT of one of these generals and comes back a year later and measures the guy again, the correlation between those two scores could be like 0.95. Right. So so he doesn't have right. any other instruments other than their height. Right. You know, even their body weight could fluctuate more than their their G score. An- another another point to make here is so so yes, G is robust. Um and you can. It doesn't matter what test battery you use. You can. Use, there are all sorts of cognitive test batteries. And if you give people five different IQ tests, their scores correlate about 0.95 or higher across those those batteries. And you know, like like Steve says, it's something we can uh, that we can measure reliably and, and valid, validly, which is no no small thing in in psychology. I understand you can't give somebody a test for discipline, but I'd be surprised if, say, over the course of time at a military school like West Point, you couldn't figure out after four years who was pretty disciplined. Um, so it may take a longer course to figure that out, but I think my question is, suppose right. you gave a rank ordering of people as regards to the discipline at military right. school, then later look down the road to see how those people did. The contra hypothesis would be that as you went up the ladder, discipline 
beyond a certain G threshold trumped right. G. So, so you've, des- you've described an interesting research project for psychology. And yeah. so in his field, one of the main things, you would become famous if you developed a good method or instrument for measuring a, qu- a personality quantity, which you could show is somewhat independent of, say, cognitive ability, but is stable. So when you measure the person again, you get roughly the same score and predictive of some outcome. Right. And so that that's the whole ball game in his field is to try yeah. to do that stuff. It, that's right, exactly. Let and, me let me go back to our friend Angela Duckworth. Right. So there's a woman who I think she won a MacArthur Prize for that's this, right? right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I interacted with her when I was at the University of Oregon. She was not at Oregon, but her research kind of rose to prominence when I was back at Oregon. I was interested in these things. So she developed a grit inventory. So it's basically a kind of self survey, a kind of survey instrument where you fill it out, and it's it purports to try to estimate your level of grit. And one question is, is grit anything but conscientiousness, which is a previously existing personality construct? Seems but, quite different intuitively. Okay. So so she had this thing, and it, it would measure things about- How much crap you're willing to go through to get yeah, something exactly. done, Yeah, right? exactly. So, so she claimed that grit did a better job of predicting school success, for example, than IQ. And she got a ton of play. Um, Can you measure grit? I, I'm not sure. So I think grit is probably only as stable as conscientiousness, roughly, as a, in, as a construct. I contacted her because I, I read about her work, and we were doing some work at Oregon with student SAT scores. And I said, oh, I would love to be able to use your grit survey in my classes and see if I can develop it as a separate additional predict, independent predictor, which I could then combine with SAT to predict how well students would do. But I could not replicate any of her results. I could not replicate any of her results. Did you and publish? Of course not. If you look in in meta analyses and subsequent studies, yeah, the correlations between grit and outcomes like academic performance and job performance, they're they're, they're positive, but they're not as large as G. They're they're not as large as G. And then there's also the issue, as Steve alluded to, with whether or not grit is old wine in, in new bottles. And I've collected data on grit and also conscientiousness, and they correlate really highly. Um, a distinguishing aspect of, of grit is that it has a temporal component, so persistence towards very long-term term goals. So I, I think the story that we like to tell ourselves, and I think it's probably true that like there's some really determined person who really wanted to be an Apache uh, copter pilot, and she just drove herself, and maybe she didn't have the best other skills, but it was her grit that got her there. That seems like a plausible description of reality. It's just that we haven't figured out how to measure that properly, maybe in that person. Well, well, or, yeah, and another another thing to to point out here is that. What we've been talking about is is the high correlation of G relative to other predictors. This doesn't preclude an individual. So we're talking about uh, group-level data across many people. And this doesn't preclude – we can make predictions about what individuals can do. But it's possible that an individual can, um, in a sense, defy that, that, that trend and, and reach a high level of performance in some – becoming a helicopter pilot or something through, you know, just doggedness. I have a friend who's, um, he's incredibly self-conscious about the fact he's gotten ahead with, as he perceives, very little G. He had a theory, what he calls contact intelligence. His idea is that if you grow up in a certain academic area, uh, an academic town, 
you actually don't have to be very smart. You just have to interact with smart people, and it, it rubs off on you. Pick up enough stuff being an incredibly lazy person, just being observant, and having the ability, having high metacognition abilities, being self-aware, watching other people. He thinks this has gotten him very far ahead, although he works fairly hard, but not very hard, and he doesn't think he's very smart, but he thinks he's more self-aware and observant than most people, and this, and he's charming. He's incredibly charming. He's also good-looking, which helps, and he's tall, but he's pretty convinced that that's allowed him to get by way past vastly smarter people he sees strewn by the side of the road, having blown themselves up by doing really dumb self-destructives. He, he ridicules academics as being kind of Asperger-y, you know, unaware, kind of like doing really compartmentalized stuff. He may not be wrong. I mean, there are plenty of people, like the people who, other than a few narrow specialties like intellectual property law or um, quant trading, most of the people who make a lot of money in business are very good at sales and marketing. They're just charming. They can get their ideas across. They're brighter than average, but they're not super bright. And so your friend might not be completely wrong. So how it, does the G-hypothesis apply in these areas? Well, what I, one thing I would say is that it's useful to, to make a distinction here between uh, fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. This is the, a classical distinction in the intelligence literature. Fluid intelligence is the ability to solve novel problems, adapt to new situations. Uh, crystallized intelligence is your knowledge, your expertise. So I think that you know, interacting with smart people, what that affects is, is your uh, crystallized in intelligence. So I think that that um, he he's he may not be he might he might be right and thinking that he's he's not smart he's probably thinking is about about his analytical abilities his analytical reasoning um, and so on he's probably not thinking of the knowledge that he gains through interactions with these people as being part of his intelligence but an argument can be made I think that he it it, it is. It's interesting because his father was clearly, his father was an engineering prof, very, very smart guy. Um, but his father kind of saw this. At one point in time, my friend, his father was pushing him to be a chem major. My friend failed all the classes that semester. He comes to his father crying. And his dad said, you're the one of my kids I don't worry about. No worries about you. And he went on to make far more money than anybody else in the family. It also depends on whether or not He's he's right in his assessment of his intellect, who his reference group is, right? Yes, definitely, definitely. Right. No, he's, he came from a very intellectual town. Yeah. He had a lot of smart friends. Right. So right. So I I want to switch gears to uh, expertise and the ten thousand hour rule and becoming a master of a particular skill. But before I do that, I I want to just uh, dwell for a second since we're all in higher ed on something called the College Learning Assessment. Are you familiar with this at all? No. So let me tell you the story of this. So this is an assessment that they designed to give to graduating seniors. And it was, I think, mainly designed for schools that are not on the R1 prestigious side of things, but you know, maybe right. less well-known schools. But it was, meant, it was designed in conjunction uh, with employers. So the employers would say, well, I want the person to be able to read a paragraph and look at a, gra a graph and then answer some questions about what our sales budget should be or something. They, 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 they define it in terms of really kind of very practical, real world, but kind of white collar-ish tasks that they wanted the students uh, to be able to perform. And 
if you then took this college learning assessment in your senior year and you did really well, even if you were at some maybe not so prestigious directional state college, you the employers could say, oh, this kid really learned what he was supposed to learn in college and he's very useful, et cetera. So it was designed as a very practical test. But now you as a psychometrician can mm. probably just guess that the thing ends up being a measure of G. Right. And right. so there was a very big, I think it was a RAND assessment uh, of college, of the CLA. It's called the CLA. And we're, we're not that familiar with it because, again, if you're at an R1, not very many of your students are taking the CLA. Yep. But I think at many other schools, a lot of kids are taking the CLA as kind of like, not like maybe ki our kids might take the GRE in order to get into right. graduate school. These kids are taking a CLA mm. to validate that they really completed a solid college education. Mm. They should be hired by a good company, right? So Rand did this big study of the CLA, and lo and behold, it turned out you could predict the CLA of the student based on their ACT or SAT score when they entered college. Right. Okay? Right. So now the question is, what did the kid get out of college? Right. Because you can actually now look at freshmen taking the CLA versus seniors taking the CLA, and how much of a gap is there between... Yeah. Well, ahead. what I would say is that the, the CLA is capturing knowledge and skill the acquisition of which is is influenced by cognitive ability as assessed by the SAT and ACT. So this instrument may well assess knowledge and skill that's useful and necessary even for success in some job. That's what they're getting out of the, their education. They're better all they're better prepared <coughs> than a college freshman would be. Okay, but um, but yeah, what what's what's driving individual differences in the CLA is what was assessed by the SAT and the ACT. So what's interesting about these results, and I'll, I'll send you a link to them because yeah. there, there are these huge studies now. Because this is, I mean, in economic terms, this is like a big test, right. right? And what's interesting, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's it's roughly like this. It's like it, it, imagine I have two. One kid's a senior and one kid's a freshman. And on average, seniors have a higher CLA score than right. freshmen. Right. But how much do I have to increase, say, if, if the freshman had a higher SAT score right. than the senior, how much higher would it have to be before the freshman already is doing better than the senior right. on the CLA? Right. Oh, right. And, and, right. and it's, it's, only right. Like, it's only like half a standard deviation right. of SAT score. So, so you could almost say that like if you had a yeah. choice between <laughs> everything you got from your college education- yes. Yes. As tested in this incredibly right, right. practical, employer-dictated test, is only about half an SD of right. SAT. So, so that's what you—that's what you took out a hundred thousand dollars in loans for, and spent right. four years of your life on. Right, right. Which which would say that you'd be, you'd actually be better off with a super bright um, freshman, definitely. Yeah. Than. The, yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the whole school. Like the in the in the validation study they did of this, the schools per, that participated were um, MIT, the University of Minnesota. So they had the whole range. They had the they had the high end. They had sort of R one type schools, but then they had like uh, directional state universities and maybe even community colleges. And so they had a very large range, and there was almost they even could define a capital G, huh. which is like the level of the school performance. Right. Of on CLA, and it turned out basically just to be the SAT average at the school, basically. So the, here's an here's a thought experiment um, in a, in sports uh, like uh, well basketball at least you can draft players right out of high school, 
Right, exactly. Or they yeah. go to college. So what would happen if we just drafted if corporations like Microsoft Microsoft and did this Google. actually 20 years ago. Microsoft started doing this when I was in Seattle in the 90s. They were hiring 17-year-olds. Okay, there you um, go. And I think they found that performance was, I can't remember the exact result, but pretty close to what they were getting from uh, seniors right. graduating from college. And they're right. training these kids up. These right. kids are sure. good programmers, sure. but they have some kind of training program internally. They're doing quite well. G- right. Gates and Allen were both are both IQ nuts. And, and right. actually, there's a famous quote in like Forbes or Fortune of Bill Gates where he says, you know, Microsoft is in the IQ business. That's it. We have to win the IQ war. We're going to get destroyed. With, with, with himself as Exhibit A. Yeah, Exhibit A. So anyway, so I, I just thought when I read about these CLA studies, I just felt like, wow, these guys, had they taken your class on G or psychometrics, they could have predicted the outcome of this huge exercise right. where they had employers, you know, designing tests of, you know, office skills, you know, or um, strategy decision-making, you know, in right. the corporate environment, right. you know, but it just turns out to be basically a G, a, a test of G. Yeah. Grant, you may be right in general. I'm thinking about an engineering degree or a math degree. Now, you know, I was a math major in college, and there's simply no way I could have beaten myself or come close to myself taking the same, taking a high-level math test at the end because I simply didn't know as much by the that, time I graduated. No, that's a great right? point. So, so, so on the on the GRE subject test for chemistry or math, no high SAT freshman generally can beat the seniors because the seniors have learned so much during right. the four years. So and, if but, you're going to specialize jobs, right, yes. I think there's no doubt that a college education right. is helpful. So CLA was specifically... So I, get, in, no, I, get, in, I get that. I get but, CLA is a, more, it's a general yeah. test of basic But in the skills. minds of the designers, who were people from corporate America, they thought they were dis, you know, testing the seniors on a set of special skills that were really important for corporate America, and that these kids, you know, that's what they went to college to learn. But I think those people were a little deluded about exactly what they were doing. Yeah, and you could get a you know a super bright uh, freshman who could who could do better than the average senior who had been through four years of, of education at the with a two hundred thousand dollar price tag. By the way, I guess your example, Corey, you're kind of on the high end. So like at MSU, I believe we eliminated the algebra requirement for graduation. Like it used to be a real problem. Like some kids who entered MSU had trouble with like algebra two or something. So we, we've actually changed the math requirement at MSU. So if you looked at some of our seniors and you asked, can these seniors after four years at MSU do math better than a bright high school senior? It could be the opposite. The high school senior could do calculus and the guy who's graduating with a non-technical degree here can't actually do algebra very well. So actually, even in that case, it might might not turn out so well. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about people who are um, taking a specialized, specialized major. Yeah, yeah. specialized right. major, yeah. yeah. No, and look, I think that's where, you know, there's a lot of argument about the value of college, but I think there's really no doubt if you're actually learning something that's a specialized discipline where knowledge has been accreted over centuries, sure, right? And sure. the specialized no. things you've got to learn. Right. You can't get away from no, college right. in that right. case. Nobody's no. born without knowledge. Exactly. Nobody's right. born with it. Right. right. No, nobody doubts that in your mechanical engineering courses or your physical chemistry courses that you're you're learning something very specialized and difficult and et cetera. It takes years to learn. But if I'm the dean of a certain college here at MSU, and I say, well, I'm preparing my kids for critical thinking and the business world and the ability to process- Generalist. Yeah, generalist roles. 
that's what these CLA guys are trying to measure. Right. And then they realize, like, no, actually, uh, we're not measuring anything that the SAT doesn't measure. Right. So that so they effectively had a test that was an SAT that they maybe that's all they were familiar with, and so they designed the test to do yeah, that. That's exactly but, right. But it's just me that that's a badly designed test. Right. It's a little bit. It's a little bit like um, instead of measuring on like your you measuring you on your mile run time and pull ups and push ups, I designed some really complicated like thing that you have to do with your body. And I but then I realized like right. I can predict how you do on that more complicated test just by making you run the mile and the forty yard dash and doing some pull ups and push ups. And it's kind of like that. Yeah, if you uh, generalize it across enough physical abilities, you'll get kind of yeah. the same phenomenon. Of course, people who run the mile often can't bench press, you know, no, like I take a composite. 70 pounds. Yeah. No, I take a composite. But anyway, so, okay, let, let's leave that. And I want to talk about your colleague, Anders Ericsson, who right. I, I actually met at some, I was invited to some conference on the on genius, like the idea of genius, and he was there. And so we had some interesting conversations. This guy... Pop, I don't know if he, maybe Malcolm Gladwell popularized it, but this guy did research which suggested that there was some kind of rough rule that you needed 10,000 hours of deliberate practice right. to become this, um, an expert. Yeah, this, this idea of a, of a minimum amount of intensive training in a domain, it was, it was called the 10-year rule, and people looked at lots of different domains, athletics and composing and all sorts of things. And uh, Chase and Simon, uh, Herbert Simon and uh, his colleague Bill Chase talked about in their classic research on chess, Herbert Simon was a Nobel laureate. So um, Erickson came out of this tradition of, of work and he did a study in the 90s looking at musicians. He found that the elite level music students in this in these studies had on average by early adulthood accumulated about 10,000 hours of of what he and his colleagues called deliberate practice and then the less less accomplished musicians had thousands of hours less on average um, and Gladwell wrote about uh, these findings in outliers and kind of Gladwell kind of took his inspiration from this study and said that 10,000 hours is the magic number of true expertise. And this is where the 10,000 hour rule, as Gladwell formulated it, came from. But what is very clear, if you look at studies from chess to music to sports, is that among elite performers, there's a tremendous amount of variability um, in the amount of time they've estimated engaging in, in training to reach an elite level. I have a colleague in Australia who did what I think is really one of the first serious challenges to this uh, Ericsson's viewpoint. And he had chess uh, members of a Buenos Aires chess club, and including very highly ranked ones. And he found that the amount of so-called deliberate practice that they estimated before reaching the master level ranged from about 3,000 hours to 24,000 hours. And there were some people with over 20,000 hours of practice who had still not reached master level. And it's, there's, no, there's no minimum amount of 
Well, well, yeah, there, there must be. <laughs> there must be. Yes, of course, because you're not born with the. But it's but it's it's not are, ten thousand. It's not many, ten thousand hours. How many chess grand beach grandmaster with five hundred hours or less? Um, I, I I don't know the exact answer to that, but what I will say, I estimate zero. But yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, in their in their study, they found with masters at least the range from about three thousand hours to twenty four thousand, or maybe it was twenty six thousand so hours. Not, you know, it's within. Order of magnitude. Well, definitely order of magnitude. Yeah, in half an order of magnitude. Um, <laughs> that's a. It's kind of way off. <laughs> but your field is not is not is not physics, right? So <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know. That's right. Well, if you if you just say practice helps, uh, that's pretty weak, right? Um, that's pretty weak. But we not, know that we're because... not we're not talking hundreds of hours, right? We're not talking. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, like here, I can't. I can't sit around now and like. Play, practice for a couple hundred hours and expect to become a chess master. Right. Here's here's a critical point. Okay, we can we can talk about two levels of analysis here. We can talk about or two types of variability. We can talk about variability within a person. Okay, what explains someone's increase in skill in playing chess? Well, it's training and what they acquire through training, and that's because we're not born with with knowing the queen's gambit or something, right? You have to engage in, in some type of activity, some type of training activity to acquire that, that knowledge. Okay, the other level of analysis or the other type of variability is between-person variability. And the claim that we've been focused on in our research is the, the, the claim by Erickson and colleagues that you can largely account for differences across people in terms of their accumulated amount of Was of that his claim? Because I'm familiar with the 10,000-hour rule doesn't say that anybody can become a grandmaster with 10,000 hours. It right. suggests that those who become grandmasters have put 10,000 hours in it. So well, the, the testable claim that we focused on from his 1993, famous 1993 paper, which coincidentally has been cited now just over 10,000 10, times. <laughs> this is Erickson, not Gladwell. Right, this is Erickson. Um, His leadership is, is smaller than Gladwell's. It, is that you can largely account for individual differences in performance in terms of accumulated amount of practice. That is the claim that we've focused on. We don't deny, and no one would deny, that you have to practice in order to become an elite performer. It's impossible. It's 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 impossible. But. That has no direct bearing on the magnitude of the correlation across people in uh, performance and pra- between performance and practice. I mean, we can think of plausible a plausible scenario where people with less practice have actually reached a higher level than people with more practice. Well, obviously, that will happen. Yeah, and you, right. That's called talent. If he's denying the existence of talent, that, then that's, well, that's a how, shocking. Claim. That's well, how it was interpreted initially. He. What, what he claims is that there's no evidence that is convincing enough to, for him to believe that talent plays a, a major role in achieving elite-level performance. He hasn't seen the evidence that would convince him of that at this point. That's yeah, his— that, I, I find that almost not defensible. Uh, well, whether or not that is defensible is—that's an important question, but we focused on the narrower, testable claim about— the uh, the role of practice and accounting for individual differences. 
it just seems that if you look at sports, I assume he's not talking about sports, right? No, because he is. He is, he is talking it, about sports. in sports, you've got a set of guys who basically played exactly the same number of hours, well, right? With massive variations in ability by the time you get out of college, right? There's some elite quarterbacks, some not very good quarterbacks. All these guys have been playing since so, they were six years old. So having actually argued with Erickson about some of this stuff, he gets he has a hidden variable in his pocket. Well, how effectively or right. deliberately did deli- your guys practice? Right. See, the guys who are oh, loafing off. Deliberate off, practice. Yeah, right. yeah you, they go qualifier. to practice. That's right. They go to practice, but they don't know what they're doing. The guys who really focus on improving their skills, those that's why they're- but You can't measure that, actually. It's well, difficult. That's, that's, that's right. It's, it's, impossible. it's impossible to measure. That's, that's it's Im- hidden. That's a real problem. Of course, yeah. It makes, they, a, it makes they, a theory un- unfalsifiable. They, well, that, that's in fact exactly what in a recent presentation my colleagues have suggested. So they stipulate that full concentration is necessary for deliberate practice. Well, how do you know whether somebody is concentrating fully? Can anybody ever concentrate fully on something? Does that mean that 100% of your attentional resources, how would you ever know that? So it's interesting, if you take the case of the Patriots' Tom Brady, who people thought, you know, was an pretty good college quarterback. He went in the seventh round. On Erickson's theory, this guy was practicing just phenomenally deliberately all through college, but nobody noticed except maybe Bill Belichick, who only drafted him in the seventh round. Everyone else thought he was just like everybody else. So you have a whole set of people focused on talent, none of whom detected, presumably, there's one guy who seemed to be practicing maybe a little harder than everybody else. It just... On the face of it, right, it makes the theory look... He almost just replaces the our notion of talent with a notion of practicing effectively, right? Right. Now, Which begs the question of, well, why do some people practice effectively? I mean, that sounds... If some people are, are able to get more out of practice than others, that yeah. sounds a whole lot, and, lot like ability. <laughs> and, I, and I suspect that you, if you really wanted to crush the guy, you could say, well, let's look at VO2 max before the guy starts training and cycling. And then I'll predict the guy who practices effectively because he'll have a hell of a abnormal VO2, high VO2 max that I measured through some physical measurements uh, well before he started to learn how to cycle. Remember, right? the, beha- so- remember, the, remember the behaviorist uh, theory of uh, kind of motivated action? Skinner would claim that, you know, we did things because we were reinforced, but some things were self-reinforcing. Yeah. And Chomsky's like... What? 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 He's like, you know, <laughs> right. how would you actually measure <laughs> right. that? Maybe the guy is just really enjoys it. It's kind of interested, but you couldn't use the concept of interested, motivated, et cetera. So you had to have this other kind of concept, which effectively, right. again, couldn't be tested. So, and- so Erickson will concede that height and body size are genetically prescribed characteristics that bear on people's success in various right. things but, like basketball. But what about balance and coordination? Well, he would say what, what he would what he would say is that. Um, these things can be influenced by training and practice. My response is, well, yeah, that doesn't mean that those are, those things are not also influenced by genetics. Right. So I think that there's this this notion or definition of, of talent, which is is one that um, it doesn't make much sense in terms of. <laughs> what we know about genetics. Yeah. Just because something is influenced by genes doesn't mean that it's not modifiable through experience, yeah. right? He would presumably ex- expand beyond the concept of height and strength and so forth to all other physical characteristics, right? 
you know, like VO2 max or oh, right, sure. He would, in or, fact, he's know, he's weight to VO2 max ratio, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, bone diameter, and we'll we'll report uh, or show uh, refer to evidence showing that you can change these things through experience. But again, I mean, that's a kind of a a straw man, right? The I I would like to show uh, Erickson some very recent. Uh, results which take the um, genomic-based prediction of cognitive ability, and then they actually use it to predict which kids out of a cohort of, say, 3,000 kids uh, who have been tracked through high school will actually manage to take calculus and do well in math, and how many will sort of terminate at algebra or geometry. Yeah. And and there's clearly very strong predictive power in this, and I think yeah. he would he would have a trouble. He would well, have trouble what he what he what he would argue is that is that here we're not talking about true expert performance, okay? We're talking about a lower level of, of skill. We're not talking about predicting world-class uh, mathematicians. And so he, he's argued that uh, basic abilities and capacities, general cognitive ability is predictive of performance differences early, but then with a lot of training and, and the acquisition of domain-specific kill skill that drops out. We did what I think was an inv- a pretty exhaustive review of the literature concerning that question, and boy, evidence for that notion of a of a vanishing validity is mixed at best. And on balance, the evidence suggests that basic ability, cognitive ability, is still predictive of a lot of things, even after a lot of training at a high, high, at relatively high levels of skill. It seems like the training hypothesis do, does give rise to another one, which is no one's going to train unless they're massively motivated. So you're not going to put right. in 10,000 hours without right. this. And so if, if, if there's a correlation between training and performance, you'd probably find a correlation between motivation and performance too, right. as measured by basically how many hours you're willing to put in. I was right. I had a saxophone teacher, you know, and who suggested to me I should be practicing, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day. And you know, like. But there's there, there's there's a it's a chicken and egg thing. So why do people persist in something? I had zero for, interest. That's probably why. But I, I think the early data that Erickson looked at showed a correlation between number of hours practiced and ability. And and I thought you may, you might just have the causality wrong in the sense that people that are good are going to practice more because they they can see that they're good and getting and, better and, and interested. Right. A huge yeah. number of people yeah. can just right. drop out of stuff. They're just not interested. That 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 certainly is the is the case. I mean, you think about people who have persisted in something like music and they've accumulated ten thousand hours of practice. You can't infer from from that finding that it's just practice that's propelled them to. Because why did they keep doing it? Why didn't they drop out? Yeah, um, survivor bias. Survivor bias, exactly. And their study. Uh, their studies, particularly the, or including the 1993 study that has gotten so much attention, it cannot rule out that possibility. It cannot rule out that possibility. So what it's do we, correlational. So what do we know about the link between practice and performance? How much can you improve your ability at something you're, you know, on the surface, not great at? You know, I decide I want to become uh, a great piano player. Right. Here's here's one very I think important and positive thing that's come out of of this discussion about deliberate practice, and that is that 
through training, people can improve their performance more than they probably thought possible or more than might even seem possible, okay? Uh, you take, uh, you can show this in laboratory tasks like remembering digits. Uh, they did these studies back in the early 80s where they gave people training in remembering random strings of digits. And college students, after a lot of training, can remember 70, 80 digits, okay? Um, can I ask? Yes. In, in that example, the kids who got up to 70 or 80, right. did they develop specialized strategies to do it, or did they just suddenly actually just get better they short-term memory? The, they developed specialized strategies okay. to do it, mnemonics. Yes. Um, the, the one example was a track runner, a college track runner, and he had extensive knowledge of running times, and he learned how to recode strings of digits into larger chunks and develop these so-called retrieval structures for storing these. And so I think that's a, a valuable insight, but it's um, we can't then say that we can completely explain differences or even largely explain differences across people in terms of how much training they've engaged in. Everybody, barring some uh, disability that really curtails engaging in training, can benefit from from good training, right? But that's not to say that everyone can reach an elite level. Um, so can I ask you? Through that training. <clears throat> to give us some examples that maybe you're familiar with of talent selection in our society and some examples where you think people are really super efficient and they are good at trying to figure out who's, you know, the first, who should be the first round draft pick uh, versus the 10th round. And then other situations where they're just, they, the way they select talent or personnel is just completely inefficient. Well, I think one, um, ACT and SAT scores measure what I would feel comfortable calling intellectual talent. And there's a whole lot of discussion and controversy over the use of SAT and ACT scores. People say high school grades are better predictors. No, actually, they're about it. If you look at the, the validities of high school grades and ACT, SAT scores, they're about the same. And the best formula for prediction includes both. And so I think that's a success story. Right? Now, are there issues with using the SAT and the ACT, their group difference in, is in test scores, and that's a that's a problem, that's a challenge. But that doesn't mean that these test scores are worthless for their intended purpose. In fact, we know they're not. How much do training courses uh, improve ACT and SAT scores? Uh, the if you look at there's been a good deal of research on this and. Uh, the the gains tend to be quite small um, in terms of number of points. I'm thinking of the old SAT uh, scoring system of 16 being the the top 1600 being the top score, and um, I believe that the gains are something on the order of, of 50 points, or maybe not even that. 20 points comes to mind. Yeah, I think one. that's right, and it, it's and a fraction of a standard deviation. It's a fraction of a standard deviation. Now. Could somebody, um, you know, practice for months and months the SAT, learning the vocabulary terms, the mathematical uh, 
skills that are necessary to do well in the team. Yeah, yes. Okay. But people don't tend to do that, right? If you if someone practiced intensively for a year, I would be really surprised if their improvement wasn't more than 20 points. Uh, so uh, I think we're close to being out of time. Um, do you want to say, do you want to throw out one more re- interesting research result that uh, you'd like to share with our audience? This is not a research result, but one thing that that's, uh, I think, an important point to make in discussions about of the sort we're having, people have strong pre-existing beliefs about all of this sort of, sort of stuff. Um, I've written in both the scientific literature and places like the New York Times about some of the stuff that we've talked about. And people have these knee-jerk reactions. Oh, you're saying that practice isn't important <laughs> to becoming an expert? Like, no. No, yeah, we're you, not saying that at all. You know, something as simple as a two-factor model, like, well, A and B contribute right. to your success in different proportions. People can't even wrap their heads right. around that. Right. Right? Well, I think they can when they're not emotionally attached to the, exactly. a certain a certain outcome, right? Right, you know. right. Exactly. And and I think that um, it's important for people to be cognizant of how their pre-existing beliefs about all of the sorts of things that we've talked about, about the origins of individual differences in intelligence and skill impact how they interpret evidence um, and how they think about these, these issues. And it's even hard for scientific researchers to try to set all of this aside. But that's not to say that we shouldn't try to, because if we want some accurate understanding of this, we have to try to. I think in general, the ideal is that you seal your beliefs off from your investigative mind. You almost have what Julian James used to call the bicameral mind. Right, <laughs> right. that's right. One Very mind tough. just has your values, your beliefs, things you want to be true about the world. The other essentially has your methodology right. and carries things out. The fact is that people generally can't do this and they're worse at doing these things in, on subjects where there's a lot at, sta- at, sta- at stake for them emotionally, uh, politically. And it applies across the board, right? People, I, I, I found very few people in my experience who have strong views on a topic where that doesn't seriously color their interpretation of evidence. I've, I've found right. very few cases where someone will say, you know, you know I believe strongly this you know, and they'll actually seek out information, fairly interpret conflict information. That's very rare. It's just, it makes it very hard for humans to conduct science. Here's here's one, actually, a research finding that I will mention. My uh, graduate student, who actually just yesterday or the day before defended his PhD, has b- been doing work on mindset. This is another construct in this area that's- Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck, that, yeah. right, at Stanford's become very popular. And the idea, a growth mindset, people have a belief that their abilities are malleable and can be changed through effort and training. And um, this is huge stuff. I mean, schools are using mindset interventions and and millions of dollars of research funding. And my graduate student, Alex Burgoyne, and one of my colleagues at Case Western Reserve did a meta-analysis of this. And... Basically, they found that the average correlation between 
growth, having a growth mindset and academic performance is about 0.1. And interventions, um, the average effects are very small. Is it not, it's not nothing, but it's not huge uh, either. This How many an, studies uh, was this? Uh, I don't know the exact. It was a lot, hundreds in their in their meta analysis. Overall sample size, tens of thousands. Does that? How do you measure? How do you measure growth mindset? You me, you measure it with uh, a questionnaire with items like I can change my intelligence through effort. Does that undermine Dweck's original results or? Well, it's it's not a, it's not a good thing. What what was her <laughs> estimate of the effect? Of the- I, I don't I don't know offhand. Larger than that. Okay. <laughs> it right. seems like the survey would measure whether you think you have a growth mindset, whether you actually have a growth mindset. So hmm. yeah, it's a thing. It could be better yeah. than you you know because it's so tough to measure the actual variable, right? Right. So, uh, Although that's the instrument that they've used. So uh, so okay. Yeah. So our guest today has been MSU psychology professor David Z. Hambrick. You can find more about his find out more about his work at a website called Science of Expertise, Science of Expertise, all one word, dot com. Thanks a lot, Zach. Thank you. Thank you.